So in studying the apostles, we're really studying, therefore, the character of God's grace. We're studying them, but we're studying what's behind them, and that is the character of God's grace. He chose these men. He chose these men in their sin. He saved these men. He changed these men. He used these men as instruments of God's glory. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional, Reformed Church plant, intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 3 once again. Mark chapter 3. And this morning, I want to read our text for us. We are looking at the lives of the apostles. And I want to uh, just provide that context for you again. Mark chapter 3 and beginning in verse 16. So when you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 16. He appointed the twelve, that is Jesus, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's holy word. Please be seated and let us go to the Lord briefly for prayer, asking for his help as we continue in our study of the lives of the apostles. Father, we thank you for... This text, we thank you for the list of these apostles which remind us that you called real-life human beings, men who were sinners, men who were marked by various flaws. Lord, as an example for us to remind us, Lord, that none of us are worthy of your kingdom, but by your grace and for your glory, in your sovereignty, you have called unto yourself your disciples. Unless you call them, we will not follow. And Lord, this is such a wonderful reminder to us, Lord, not only of the example these apostles set before us, but also the reality of your grace in our own lives. So as we continue to study this, Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, to be willing to search and examine our own lives, Lord, to see if we match up in terms of the lives of faithfulness that these men led. Lord, these should be opportunities of great repentance and great rebuke and reproving of our own hearts, Lord, that we might seek a more holy walk with you. So help us to do that, we pray, for your honor and glory. We ask these things in the blessed name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. We've decided in this this study of the Twelve Apostles to go slower rather than faster. And if you remember the first week that we began looking at these, I, I wanted to look at all 12 of them in one sermon And that has not been what we have done. Uh, We have gone much slower than I had originally planned to go. But I do think going slower is better than going faster. Because there is much that we can glean from a biographical standpoint when we look at the lives of godly saints who have gone before us. Particularly if they are saints that are found in Holy Scripture. 
verse-by-verse exposition, and this is a good reminder for us, if nothing else, in principle, that verse-by-verse exposition is a journey navigated carefully so that we can see the full-orbed beauty of Scripture. On the one hand, we must never study in such a way as to miss the forest for the trees, but nor should we study to miss the trees for the forest. And so we are working through each one of these apostles one by one in an effort, on the one hand, to focus on the details of their lives before then panning back to see the overall general application for our own lives. We're focusing, narrowing in, and then we're backing up. We're looking at the trees, and then we're backing up and looking at the forest, if you will. So you can view these sermons, and I've said this before, as biographical sketches because they allow us to peer into the lives of the men who walked with our Lord during His earthly life. The very men who were selected to be part of the New Testament church, the foundation of the New Testament church, serving alongside of the Old Testament prophets. Scripture itself is very biographical by nature. When you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament in particular is full of biographies of godliness, godly people. Um, it is wrong on the one hand to focus too narrowly uh, on morality for the sake of morality. And you see many people, if they, they preach biographical sermons, they'll focus on the morality of individuals. But studying the people of Scripture with that sort of raw focus of morality, that is, working to be like them apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ is absolutely foolish, and that is not what we are trying to do. We must not expect to be better people apart from Christ, nor should we seek Christ apart from expecting to be better. It is only Christ who changes lives through the one and only true gospel, and so there is a place for looking at the lives of godly saints and seeking to be holy as they are holy if we are found in Christ first and foremost, if we have been washed with His blood, changed by Him, and forgiven. We are placed on a path of holiness, and there are real-life examples that we ought to look to and learn from in our own Christian walks. So in studying the apostles, we're really studying, therefore, the character of God's grace. We're studying them, but we're studying what's behind them, and that is the character of God's grace. He chose these men. He chose these men in their sin. He saved these men. He changed these men. He used these men as instruments of God's glory. We're not studying the lives of the apostles to simply be better people. There aren't good people. Jesus said, there is no one good except God alone. There are no righteous people. Romans 3 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. But there are sinners who are made righteous by God's grace and by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And these sermons are an exercise in giving glory to God. Because behind these men are God. He is the one who changed them and set them before us as examples. We are called in Scripture to learn from the examples of people of faith. Perhaps one quick example helps us with this. We see in the Old Testament a person by the name of Abraham, a saint, a godly person. He is seen in Scripture as both an example to follow, while also on the same hand, the writers of Scripture showing how God was behind who he became. So on the one hand, Scripture encourages us to emulate Him as a model of faith, and we should emulate models of faith. And at the same time, it is not morality, that is being a better person, that Scripture teaches, but it's theology. So for example, we read in Genesis, in the Old Testament, in Romans, in the New Testament, that Abraham was a model of faith. It's very clear that Moses places him in Genesis 15 as a model of faith, and Paul in Romans 4 gives to us him, that is Abraham, an example of faith. The Bible says that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. To tell us that Abraham was justified in the same way that you and I are through faith. That is precisely what Paul's point was in Romans chapter 4. That salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, no matter what covenant or period of redemptive history you might exist in. 
But that is different than saying that Scripture merely commands us in our flesh to try to be like Abraham for morality's sake. After all, let us not forget, Abraham proved faithless many times by not trusting God, not trusting God's promise of a son through Sarah that would come to pass, resulting in him having a child out of wedlock with Hagar, We later see him telling Sarah to lie about being his wife, also demonstrating not his faith, but his faithlessness in God. But then we turn to Romans 4, and we see that Abraham believed God. It was not on the basis of his good works or what he did. He was chosen out of Ur of the Chaldeans, a pagan priest. He was saved by God. He believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul's point there is that he is a model of faith. If you want to be a believer, look to Abraham. He demonstrated the type of faith that is required for you to get into the kingdom of God, for you to be forgiven, for you to receive life eternal. It's based on the covenant of God, the promise of God, the pledge of God that we receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, let me just read to you and remind you exactly what it was Paul said in Romans chapter 4. He said this, for example. He said, The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise, that is the promise that was originally made to Abraham, may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, that is the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that is Gentiles, who is the father of us all, both Jews and Gentiles. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations and the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Because Abraham believed, Paul says, God gives life to the dead. He gave life to Abraham. He gives life to all the dead, all of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And then we read this in verse 20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, Abraham did, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why Paul says his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, listen to this, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. You see, Abraham is a model of faith. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Scripture holds up Abraham is a model of the type of faith we need to have to receive the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ and says that his sort of faith is the type of faith we should have to receive the same thing he received, which was forgiveness of sins and being justified by God's grace. So behind a study of the so-called morality of the lives of saints in the Bible is really the theology of God, the theology of grace. We are not studying the lives of any of these men for morality's sake alone. It's the theology of grace that is behind it, showing us that apart from God, nothing is possible. And that with God, everything is possible because God changed these men and used them in extraordinary ways in service of His kingdom. Now, so far, we have seen God as sovereignly called and saved and changed men like Peter. We called him the apostle of second chances. His brother Andrew, we called him the apostle of contentment. James and John, those brothers, those sons of thunder. Philip and Bartholomew, we refer to them as the apostles of patience. And last week, we looked at Thomas and Matthew. We called them the apostles of loyalty. The next apostle that is mentioned in Mark chapter 3 and verse 18 is a man by the name of James. If you notice your Bibles there, he's called James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, characteristically, because Mark is brief, Mark doesn't tell us anything else about James except for the fact that he was the son of Alphaeus. Calling him the son of Alphaeus, obviously to distinguish him from James, The other James, the son of Zebedee, mentioned there in verse 17, the brother of John. 
This particular James, the son of Alphaeus, is not the same James that was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was a key figure in the book of Acts. You can read about him in Acts and even in the book of Galatians. This is James, the son of Alphaeus. Out of all of the apostles, we know the least about James, of son of Alphaeus. There is not one word spoken from his lips recorded in Scripture. There is not one event revealing his presence. We simply know by the four listings of the apostles in the New Testament that he was, in fact, one of the apostles that walked with our Lord during his earthly life, but we have no, no scene or no example, no story about his involvement with the ministry of Jesus. That is why a good nickname for him might be we might want to call him the Apostle of Minimalism. The Apostle of Minimalism. Because number one, what we know about him is minimal. And number two, apparently, in comparison to the other apostles, he did minimal. He did very little. Scripture calls him, and in fact, this is interesting, in a couple of different places, James the Less. James the Less. Apparently because he played a minimal enough role as to not even make a big splash in the pages of Scripture. In fact, when he's called James the Less, that is not to distinguish him from James the son of Zebedee, because when you wanted to distinguish one person from another who had the same name, you simply said they were the son of so-and-so, which is exactly what Mark does here. James the son of Zebedee and James the son of Alphaeus, which means when Scripture calls him James the Less, it was a nickname that stuck, and it was a nickname that stuck for a good reason. Now, I'm here to tell you this morning, I don't have any clue what that reason was. I might have some clue, and I'll give a stab at it, but I'm not convinced anyone knows exactly why he was called James the Less. The word less is the Greek word mikros. It most often means small or little, but it could also mean younger. So it could be that James the Less was called James the Less because he was smaller than the other James, James the son of Zebedee, small in stature. Or perhaps he was younger than the other James. In one sense, that might not even matter, since even in our culture, the, the term younger can be a synonym for little. I'll give you a simple example. I have a little brother, but he's three inches taller than me and about at least 40 to 50 pounds heavier than me. But he's still my little brother, even though I'm older than him. The apostles were blood brothers in Christ, and maybe James the Less was like a little brother to James the son of Zebedee, younger in age, smaller in stature, maybe both. But if James the son of Alphaeus was small in stature, and that's the, why, the reason he acquired his nickname, I want to suggest that James the Less maybe acquired that nickname for another reason. And it's what I said before. Since we don't know whose brother he was, and since we don't know what his stature was, maybe he acquired the name James the Less because in comparison to James the son of Zebedee, he really didn't do anything with great influence. In comparison to, to James, the, the son or the, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't even do much compared to him. The half-brother of our Lord made far more um, of a splash in Scripture in the book of Acts than James the son of Alphaeus. If he was small in stature, then he was easy to overlook. Scripture overlooks him. We don't really know much about him. But I would want to make this suggestion, and it's simply this. On the one hand, the Bible doesn't say anything about him. It doesn't say anything about him negative. It also doesn't say anything about him positive. Nothing positive, nothing negative. That might mean that there wasn't anything glaring in his character that was worth mentioning in terms of a failure. That's oftentimes, honestly, the way Scripture writes about the apostles. It magnifies their failures. Think about Peter, who denied the Lord three times. Think about Peter, who had faith to walk on water and then lost that faith and drowned. Oftentimes, it is the negative qualities that are magnified, not the positive. So perhaps James the Less, although he didn't have a major influence apparently, he didn't have a lot of mess-ups either. There is no sermon recorded in the Scripture, no book written 
No prominence even with him in the early church. James, the half-brother of our Lord, apparently did far more, was much more of a popular leader. Even Judas Iscariot, who betrayed our Lord, had a more prominent position among the twelve. He carried the money bag and was the treasurer. But we have to believe that whatever his gifts were, however minimal they were, whatever his opportunities were, however minimal they were, apparently he maximized those because there's nothing negative that Scripture mentions about him. There's also one other possible claim to fame regarding James the Less. Matthew's father was named Alphaeus as well. So some suggest that James was the younger brother of Matthew. We know that Peter and Andrew were brothers, James and John were brothers, so Jesus had somewhat of a pattern of selecting brothers to be apostles. But again, this is merely conjecture. However, there are other commentators that suggest that this James was a cousin to Jesus. And I think that's probably the best argument. Now, those that make this argument say that at the cross during Christ's crucifixion was a woman named Mary. She's referred to as Mary, the wife of Clopas. And the argument is such that the word Clopas was actually another form of the name Alphaeus. So this could have been Mary, who was the wife of Alphaeus, they being together, Mary and, and Alphaeus, the parents of James. In Matthew's account, just prior to Jesus' burial, this same Mary is referenced as Mary, the mother of James. And in Mark 15.40, it refers to Mary, the mother of James, the less, indicating that this Mary, the wife of Clopas, or Alphaeus, was the mother to James, the less. Apparently indicating that is the James we're speaking about here, the son of of Alphaeus. There are things in Scripture that we don't always understand to the fullest. We, we can't know everything there is to know about everyone in Scripture, about every one of the apostles, but I think we can assume that God used the minimal gifts of this man to accomplish whatever it is that the Lord wanted him to accomplish, and we don't even know what that is. A reminder to us all that we can't control the gifts God gives us. We can't control the opportunities He gives us, the challenges. But we can control our drive for God. We can control our work ethic, our perseverance, our faithfulness and service to King Jesus, just as did, apparently, James the Less, because there's nothing negative that Scripture says about him. The most noble accomplishment on your spiritual resume is to do as much as possible for the Lord with what He has given you, however minimal it might be. The question this morning is not, what have I done for the Lord compared to others, but rather, what have I done for the Lord with what He's given me? With what He's given me. One principle that may help us this morning in talking about these matters is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul says this in chapter 4. He says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time that is, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then the Bible says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Don't pass judgment before the time. Don't pass judgment on others. Don't pass judgment on James the less. But what you ought to do is pass judgment on yourself. Examine your own heart Paul says also in this passage, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So there is this principle of self-examination where, you know, we can't control who we are. We can't control what opportunities God has given us in service of His kingdom, but we can control how we use what He has given us. We can control that. We aren't to pass judgment before the time. When the time comes and the judgment comes, God will be faithful and just in commending those deserving of being commending. And we trust in Him for that. So, in order to stress the importance of this principle, and since 
we know so little about James the less, instead of studying the person of James, of which we know little about, little to nothing, instead of studying the per- person of James, we're going to study the parable of the talents. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We want to study not so much the person of James, but the parable of the talents, because in this parable, we draw the sorts of lessons, I think, from a life lived like that of James. He might have been James the Less, the apostle of minimalism, but apparently, and I'm assuming here, he did much for the Lord, even though it wasn't recorded in Scripture, because Scripture doesn't record any great mess-ups of this man. Matthew chapter 25. Let me pick up in verse 14. Speaking about the kingdom of God, Jesus says, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, and here it's different, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And notice this verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I think the central point of this parable, or at least the point that I want to focus on, is that we are not to waste our God-given abilities and opportunities sovereignly given to us by God. When we work for God in His kingdom, we are not to waste what He has given us. What He has given us may be minimal, but He gave it to us by His grace. And it may be minimal in our own eyes, but we are to maximize those gifts and opportunities that He has given to us. And for our purposes, and really we're just going to kind of highlight this parable, nothing deep this morning, there are at least three realities that I think will push you in the direction of not squandering or wasting your God-given abilities and opportunities for service in Christ's kingdom. Three realities that will push you in a positive way not to waste those. We all want to be commended by God. We all want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or at least we ought to, true believers do. Let me help you with that. Three realities. The first reality that will help push you not to waste your God-given abilities and opportunities, has to do with the fact that there is the reality of responsibility with expectation. Secondly, there is the reality of accountability and evaluation. And third, there is the reality of susceptibility to expulsion. That is expulsion from His kingdom. So this parable is a sober one. Three realities that will help us not waste God-given opportunities to serve Christ in the efforts of His kingdom. Reality number one, just know this. There is responsibility with expectation. There is responsibility with expectation. In this parable, 
The master represents Christ and the slaves are subjects within his kingdom. And we read here in verses 14 through 18 that before leaving, the master, who represents Christ, gives his slaves stewardship over his money. We read that to one was given five talents, to another was given two talents, to another was given one talent. Now the key to see is in verse 15. To one he gave five talents, another two, to another one. But here it is, the end of verse 15. To each, according to his ability. According to his ability. So these talents very simply represent the responsibility given by the master to each slave, listen to this, in accordance with what they could reasonably handle. That is because, number one, God is sovereign. He distributes according to his choice. And number two, he is fair. He distributes fairly, as verse 15 says, according to each person's ability. We could put it this way. As our Creator, our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, knows us intimately. He knows who we are, how we are made, and what we are capable of doing. Now, the end of verse 15 says that after giving to each one according to his ability, it says the Master then went away. He went away. This is obviously meant to illustrate the departure of Christ after His first coming, wherein, upon His ascension, we read this in Ephesians 4, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. So when Jesus departed, this earth, after His first coming, He ascended, as Ephesians 4 says, and He gave gifts to men. And of course, as we read in the parable, upon his return, our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, will return in final judgment to evaluate what we did with these gifts. But I want you to notice verses 16 through 18, because it tells us what happens in the interval between Christ's first and second coming. That's, if you're awake this morning, that's where we're at now. We're in the interval between the first and second coming. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. Doesn't tell us how. And then verse 18, But he who received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now it's important to see the issue is not how much money was made, but the degree of effort to make more money for the master. That is absolutely crucial. The parable is using financial investment as an earthly illustration of spiritual investment in the kingdom of God. The point here is not money and financial investment. Now, you can take principles from this parable and apply it to the the financial investment world or stewardship regarding finances. That is fine, but that's not Jesus' main point. In fact, quite the opposite is the main point. The main point is to show the importance of using what we invest spiritually, not financially. Not financially. The primary point is that good stewardship of our gifts... And our abilities requires effort. We have a responsibility to do the best with what God has given us. The issue of our influence is a different issue altogether. Influence and praise is going to vary from one person to the next. God gives each one according to his ability. Now the other thing is we are not told exactly how, because once again financial investment is not the point here, but we're not told how the money was invested. With the first person, it says he traded to get more. The second, it doesn't say what he did to get more. And obviously with the third, he did nothing. Because whatever was invested was invested in such a way that there was a profit. That's the point to see, at least with the first two servants. The slave with five talents did his job. The slave with two talents did his job. But they didn't produce equal profit. If this were a parable on good business or investment practices, then the most praise by the master would have been given to the one who accrued more profit. But that's not what happened. In fact, the first two slaves received the exact same commendation from the master because they didn't produce equal profit, but they produced equal percentage of profit. The one who received five talents invested and got five more. The one with two invested and got Two more. So they both doubled exactly what they had been given, though the sum of money produced by the one with five talents was larger than the one with two. 
This is because the point of the parable is that equal faithfulness and devotion with what God gives a servant is the issue. Influence and results is going to vary in accordance with God's sovereign purposes. We can't worry about that. But equal faithfulness is what God requires of us. And that is how we will be judged. We are given the same responsibility in the fact that we are all given a responsibility, but we are given different responsibilities because some of us are given greater responsibilities, as is illustrated in the servant with five, and then the servant with two, and then the servant of one. Now, before we go on to the second point, please note that the last servant is singled out because he did not demonstrate the type of responsibility with respect to what his master gave him that we're talking about. We read here in verse 18, He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, there's a reasonable explanation for why he did this, though the master doesn't commend it. For protection, before banks had safe deposit boxes, people often dug holes in the ground and hid their valuables there. And I would even go so far as to say, perhaps this would have been fine if um, this had been the third servant's own money. But here's the point, it wasn't his money. He was a steward over the money of his master. It wasn't his money. And the expectation was clear from the master that he was to use the talent to make a profit. How do we know that? Because the other two did that. Two out of three understood. The first principle we learn is simply this. We've all been given different gifts, different opportunities, different abilities to use in service of our master's kingdom. We're all placed in different situations, made up of a variety of different circumstances. You can't control what you have received from the Lord, but what you receive from the Lord you must control well. You can control things like faithfulness. You can control things like hard work, commitment, drive, passion, perseverance. A Christian can and must take responsibility to maximize their spiritual resources given to them by God to accrue a spiritual profit to the glory of God and the sphere of the kingdom of God in which He has placed us. The Master gave the talents to His slaves as a matter of obligation to make a profit. Slaves didn't ask for the job, but they received the job as a matter of duty, and they wanted to, at least the first two, do it to their fullest for the honor and the sake of their master. It was his money. They were making money for him, not themselves. In the same vein, our master has tasked us with all sorts of spiritual responsibilities unique to our gifts, our church, our relationships, our lot in life. Here's the point. The test of a Christian's character is not found in what he accomplishes for Christ in terms of outward success, but in the way he accomplishes it. Laziness is never a mark of a true Christian. You can't control what you got from the Lord, but what you got should be given back to Him tenfold in terms of spiritual production and profit, which should cause us, in terms of application, to ask a simple question. What opportunities for gospel influence has the Lord given you? It's not going to be the same from one person to the next. And this is not isolated to how many people we share the gospel with. Stewardship is a, is a general principle that marks every single category of our lives. The spiritual investment in our marriages, in, in our families, the spiritual investment in our work ethic, in the workplace, our, our investment in the community and among our neighbors. We're talking about spiritual investment. And if you know anything about investment, you know that the results don't come overnight. So this is a call for Christians to take seriously their responsibility because there is great expectation that will come with what you got and what you do with what you got. Can you see capital gains, spiritually speaking, flowing from your hard work in kingdom service, in your church, in your family, in your workplace, in your community? These are all questions I think this parable asks. Now this is a sobering parable. And there are three realities that show us and help push us not to waste our God-given abilities that God has sovereign given, given to us in service for His kingdom. The first one relates to responsibility with expectation. There is responsibility 
with expectation. But there's a second reality. Why should we not waste our God-given abilities? Not only because there is responsibility with expectation, but number two, there is accountability in evaluation. And I've already implied this, but we see this in verses 19 through 27. It's important to see that to use what we receive from the Lord in a diligent way, because of Christ our Master, is important to do because He's returning, if I can put it in simple terms, to evaluate our job performance. Notice verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came. He settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to them, said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me the two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So as I said, the first two servants are rewarded, though their profit is not identical. Because the test, as we noted, of their service to the master in his absence was not how much they earned, but how hard they worked. And both effectively used their abilities to the fullest. Both earned exactly 100% of what they were given. Five to five, two to two. They both earned 100% of what they were given, and they both worked 100% in their effort. The quantity of the financial profit was not the most impressive thing to the master, was it? It was the quality of their work ethic. I already pointed out, he says the same exact thing to both of them. Verse 21, his master said to the one with five talents, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. How? Because you took the five, invested it, and got five more. Now you have ten. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In verse 23, his master said to the one with two, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. So in God's eyes, they were both faithful over a little, even though they were given a different amount. One was given more than another because the point of the parable is that when it comes to our gifts and abilities, we are to maximize what God has given us, whatever that might be. Now, the Lord Jesus not only gives to His faithful servants more responsibility to those who prove themselves faithful in this life. That's exactly what happens here. You've been faithful over little, verse 21, I'll set you over much. Verse 23, you've been faithful over little, I will set you over much. But there will be those in the eternal state who will be put in charge of many things based upon their faithfulness over a few things. And I like to think that when James the Less heard Jesus preach this parable, he was somewhat reassured and encouraged. Because he would have been aware of the fact that compared to the other apostles, there wasn't anything great about him. But he understood, whatever I do here will result in the type of experience I have there. There's an easy principle, 1 Corinthians 3.8, Paul says, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. There is an individualistic quality regarding your gifts, regarding what you do with your gifts, abilities, and opportunities, and how you will experience your reward in heaven based upon what you do on earth. Scripture clearly, clearly teaches this principle. Our often worldly views of work and leisure aren't the most biblical, and that might be why it's hard for us to understand or see the significance of of this, but notice how the master says about to, to these two faithful servants, verse 21, the end of it, enter into the joy of your master. Verse 23, enter into the joy of your master. I think this is an illusion of eternity, eternity future, of heaven, pointing forward to the eternal state, the consummated kingdom, the type of joy. And the responsibilities that are consistent with that, based upon the sort of work and labor we do here, that we will have in the eternal state. That statement is meant to reflect the fact that in the eternal state, there will be much work and much joy that comes from that work, based upon the work you do here on the earth. 
In fact, you just skip ahead to the beginning of verse 29. We see the principle again. Just the beginning of verse 29. We don't want to go too much further. For to everyone who has will more be given. Everyone who has more will be given. In this life, yes. In the next life, yes. Both are true. Both are true. Man was originally made to work, was he not? Before the fall, Adam's chief job, before he was even married, was to work the garden, till the garden. Part of the blessings of the new Eden will involve working for our master. People ask me all the time, what will heaven be like? We don't fully know. But I do think it will reflect what we do down here to a great degree, and perhaps a greater degree than we ever give credit to that concept. We will work for our Master, and we will worship our Master. Christ will be the center of all things. When you get to heaven and you are raised, you are not raised to an equal level with Christ. He will still be your Master. Your identity is Christ. But you will worship Christ and you will work for Christ. That pretty much sums up well what we do each week of our lives, doesn't it? We work and then we worship. We worship and then we work. That's the pattern, a God-ordained and created pattern. And so we should be motivated to make much use of our time on this earth. Now we need to mention the third servant before we move on to the third point because he's constantly singled out in this parable. Because quite frankly, his job performance is subpar. And that's part of the point to see. Notice verse 24. He also who had received the one talent, that's the third servant, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant." You knew that I reap where I have not sown. Gather where I scatter no seed. Then, if you knew this, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. There's that word interest again. Here we see this servant is unfaithful, unlike the first two who were faithful. In fact, he actually, notice it, maligns his master's character and offers excuses instead of apologies. He accuses his master essentially of being unfair. He accuses him of being dishonest and even of being harsh. He says, out of fear, I I buried the talent. Apparently, he didn't understand the character of his master. Maybe he didn't know his master as well as he thought. In verse 27, we saw the master's response. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers. At my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. This wasn't your money to do with what you wanted. It was mine. It was mine. And when the master says there that, um, verse 26, if you knew that where I reaped and where I've sown and gathered and where, was where I scattered no seed, if that's what you thought, then you ought to have invested it. Which is to say, that's the kind of master you figured me to be a harsh master, that should have been all the more reason why you should have used the talent in a productive manner instead of burying it and effectively squandering it. The master says that the servant's words have basically accused him rather than excused him. He was lazy. His work ethic was an insult to his master. It revealed what he thought about his master. And let me put this in perspective for you, okay, in terms of the first century world. Banks in the Roman Empire were similar to ours in many ways. If, for example, you deposited money, you could earn interest at, say, 6%. So hardly, by any effort, the most minimal of efforts, this servant could have gotten 6% return on the talent given to him by his master. But he didn't do that. The servant's flimsy, flimsy excuse worked to condemn him. He sealed his own fate with his own words. And in effect, the master responds to the servant, if you thought I was harsh with you, then you should have motivated, been motivated by that, not paralyzed by that. Out of your own fear, you could have made 6% interest, and at least I would have honored that 
But that's not what happened. This servant was marked by laziness, selfishness, sinfulness, instead of production, perseverance, and profit. And all of Christ's true servants will give an account someday to the Lord. Their evaluation, our evaluation, is not going to result in the loss of eternal life, but it will affect our eternal reward. The Master will hold all of His people accountable, just as He did all three of these. Let me give you a verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, good or bad. We will all be recompensed, we will all be repaid, the Bible says, for our deeds done in the body. Now in the context, these deeds are not the same thing as sins. This is not moral goodness and badness. The deeds in the context are the the pursuits of eternal rewards. The things that we do, the deeds that we do for eternal reward, those deeds will be judged. We won't be judged for our sin. Our sin has been judged in Christ. We can't lose Christ. can't lose our salvation. But our eternal rewards can be burnt up. We can't lose them. Paul is explicit about this. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's talking about on the day of judgment when our deeds are recompensed, when we are repaid, when we are evaluated, when that day of accountability comes, which it will come for all of us. Now before we go on to the final point, I just want to say I don't think this sort of thing is preached on enough. We need to see the Bible's emphasis on the Christian living for his or her eternal reward. Everything seems to be so focused on this life. But let me give you a few reminders. Your eternal reward is something that you should strive for. Not something you should just think about every now and then. Here's a principle. What does Paul say? In giving his testimony, he says this in Philippians, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this in verse 15, Let those of us who are mature think like this. Paul was someone who strove for his eternal reward. That's different than striving for your salvation. He didn't strive for his salvation Jesus accomplished that for him. But he did press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And anyone who is mature will have this sort of mindset. I've been quoting from 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians over and over and over again. Here's another principle. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, whether we are at home or away, we are to make it our aim to please Him. That is Christ. Why? Why did Paul strive to please Christ? Because he was striving for his eternal reward, because he knew there would come accountability. For, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for him, what is done in the body, whether good or evil. So we ought to live with a focus on our eternal reward. It is something we should strive for. It's also something that we should hope for. It's not something we just strive for, but we hope for it. We have faith that it's going to come to us. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4. To Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, exercise is of some value, you should do it, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says, disciplining yourself will come with great profit in the next life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Calvinists are the hardest workers. 
because their hope is secure and certain and sure. They strive for it. They hope for it. That's how Paul lived. And when he came to the end of his life, his conscience was absolutely clear. He says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he says with certainty, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, or we could say the just judge, the fair judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. All who have hoped in His appearing. That's the way we are to live our lives. Looking for our eternal reward. Striving for it. Hoping for it. Also enduring in it. Enduring in it. Part of the Christian life is the reality of endurance. You endure faithfully, God will reward you. James 1.11, For the sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Striving for our eternal reward, hoping for it, Enduring everything that we have to in this life to receive it is how Christians ought to live. Focus on the next life, not this life. But this parable has a twist at the end. We're talking about three realities that I hope will push you to not waste your God-given abilities and opportunities that God has sovereignly granted to you in service for His kingdom. The first reality that will push you relates to the fact there is responsibility with expectation. The second reality, there is accountability in evaluation. But the third reality is that there is susceptibility to expulsion. Verses 28 through 30. Notice verse 28. We're picking up in the middle of the exchange between the master and the third servant. And the master says to him, verse 28, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus reveals that the reason, this is pretty simple, the third servant acted the way he did is because he didn't know his master the way others thought he knew him. He represents an unbeliever. Therefore, he will be exposed as one who only gave lip service to his master, and he will be summarily expelled from the kingdom. That's what happens here. Now, those who really believe that Christ is ruling and reigning have no problem reconciling how this servant, who was under the master, who represents Christ, would be kicked out of the kingdom. You say, I thought only believers were part of Christ's kingdom. Well, The reality is that all unbelievers are also part of the kingdom in the sense that they were part of the reign of Christ. Everyone is under the reign of Christ. He's either ruling over all things or he's not ruling at all. Even unbelievers are under his rule. And even more to the point, this guy, this third servant, is not an agnostic or an atheist. This is a religious person. This is someone who pledges a close relationship to his master In fact, he had deceived all of those around him, including probably the first and second servants who thought he was a true servant. This man was a true servant, but he didn't deceive the master. The master knew all along who he was. And the master was waiting for the day to expose this servant and expel him from the eternal kingdom. And that serves as a great warning. We're talking about the twelve apostles. Let us not forget there was one of them who committed apostasy. He was kicked out of Jesus' inner band. He was kicked out of the kingdom. He was part of the visible, we could say, church. He was part of the covenant community, visibly speaking, and yet was an unbeliever. So too this third servant. And by the way, it's not just that this servant had a lapse and was unfaithful. He was marked by faithlessness as a pattern. How do I know that? Because God is just. And notice what He does in verse 30. 
The master says, cast, notice what he calls him, that worthless servant into outer darkness. Outer darkness is a figurative expression representing hell. In that place, hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's language used to describe eternal punishment. The master calls him worthless. That means this was not the first time he wasn't faithful. He had a pattern. But the leash on him ran out, and now he would be punished. Here's the lesson. True Christians are true servants who work hard for their master. False Christians may say they serve their master, but the proof is seen when a true servant faithfully serves. And how sad for this man. Let's think about this for a minute. All he had to do from a human perspective was earn one talent. One talent. The one with five earned five. The one with two earned two. All he had to do to be commended was earn one talent. To prove his faith by his works. Then he would have been on the receiving end of commendation, not condemnation. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't produce works because, here's the point, he didn't have faith. Faith without works is what? Dead. He was so close to the kingdom and yet so far away. How many profess faith in Christ but are still dead? Many. Many. And notice again verse 29, the end of it. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's always true about religious hypocrites. They will get their reward. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? They will get their reward. What is their reward? The praise of others. That's all this guy wanted. He wanted to be close with the Master for what was in it for him. He didn't want to honor his Master. He didn't love his Master. In fact, he maligned his Master. He insulted his Master. He didn't know his Master. False accusations. Did you forget that we were talking about James, the son of Alphaeus? There isn't much to say about him. He's forgotten, and that's appropriate. We must be willing to be forgotten in our service to Christ. Our motives can't be the praise of others. It must be the glory of God alone. And I just want to say this. Much of our evangelical church today comes as a result of celebrity pastors and personalities. Such is very dangerous. It's dangerous because it not only affects pastors, it affects those in the pew whose churches become just like their pastors, self-focused, self-interested, self-serving. Churches full of outward servants, listen to this, who are burying their treasures in the ground, and on the final day, the only thing they'll point to is a hole in the ground. Their lives are just as shallow as the hole the third servant buried in which he buried his treasure in. That's all he had to show. Evangelicalism from pulpit to pew has largely become marked by squandered opportunities for God's glory. God sees all and God knows all. He sees all the churches of all these people who draw all these crowds who are doing nothing for the kingdom of God. Nothing except condemning them and themselves even further. They don't love God. They don't know the character of God. They malign God. They insult God. They don't use what God has given them. God sees squandered opportunities, doesn't He? And He's just. He's just. We must be faithful even if we are few. We must be energized, though we may become marginalized. We must be overachievers even if The true church is overlooked. This was the way of our Master. He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was falsely accused. He was overlooked. Let us cling close to Christ that we may know how to live in a manner that pleases Him. Apostle John says this, Now little children abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. James the Less may have been the apostle of minimalism, but he maximized his full potential. This must be the case. 
For surely if he didn't, the Holy Spirit would have recorded and would have not shrink back from recording some flaw. There was no flaw. He maximized what God gave him. The question this morning is, what will you do with your opportunities the Lord has provided for you? Listen, that begins with the hearing of the gospel. God is sovereign over who is saved. God has chosen His elect people before the foundation of the world. But don't think you can leave after hearing the gospel and not be held accountable for rejecting it. You will be held accountable. We will be responsible for what we do with what God gives us. May we look to Him and rest in His grace. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank You for, Lord, these truths, Lord, in particular from the parable of the talents, really not a detailed analysis of this parable, but just scratching the surface of reminding us, Lord, of the great responsibility You've given to us. Responsibility with great expectation which will then result in accountability with great evaluation, reminding us that there is susceptibility to expulsion from your kingdom if we apostatize, if we reject you, if we neglect, as the author of Hebrews says, so great a salvation. Lord, guard us from that. We know it's only your grace that keeps us. And Father, we pray as we now turn to reflect on this hymn, this Lord's Supper hymn, And then partake of the Lord's Supper that you would help us to meditate deeply upon all that we've heard this morning as we draw our hearts and our gaze toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in his blessed name. Amen.